everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today is going to be a completely different kind of episode than what I've ever done before. This is going to be talking about the disappearance of Manic Street Preachers member Richie Edwards. To this day, we don't know where he is or what happened to him. We can only really speculate based on the little facts that we do know. It's crazy. Um, It was kind of somewhat difficult to find a lot of good, solid information about this, to be honest. But here I am with the facts. I'm presenting everything that I could possibly have found out about this disappearance to you guys. Without further ado, I'm basically just going to talk about his background, his state of mind, what he was going through, how he ended up with the Manic Street Preachers, and obviously his disappearance, and then looking into a possibility of a theory that he staged his disappearance and he's living somewhere unbeknownst to everybody. It's crazy. And I'm just going to put a warning before I get into any details. If you are sensitive to topics of self-harm and uh, things like that, you know, then please don't listen to it if you don't want to get triggered. I have plenty of other episodes where I don't talk about that kind of subject matter. Mental illness is a very important topic that I think we shouldn't overlook. I think we need to do its due diligence and we need to talk about it. So um, basically, without further ado, I'm just going to get started with who is Richard Edwards? Who is he? So he was born and raised in Blackwood, Wales to parents Graham and Sherry Edwards. And he also had he also had a younger sister, Rachel, that he was very close to. It was said that they were like practically best friends. They were so close to each other. Um, Richie, as he goes by, attended Oakdale Comprehensive School from 1986 to 1989. He attended University of Wales in Swansea, and he graduated with a degree in political history. He met Nikki Wire, Sean Moore, and James Dean Bradfield at Oakdale Comprehensive School, where they would become the members of the Manic Street Preachers. So just a little bit about the Manic Street Preachers. This isn't an episode like about the band. This is about Richard and his disappearance. Um, But obviously, since I'm talking about the Manic Street Preachers, I figured I would dive in just a little bit into like who they are and the music that they create. So the Manic Street Preachers kind of is a band from my understanding that was inspired by the punk scene in the 70s. Um, It was kind of said that some of the members got inspired to start a band when they were watching a documentary about 70s punk music and how that came about. Like they were inspired by The Clash and The Sex Pistols and they wanted to make their own music. And so that's why they formed a band. So Richie was initially a driver and a roadie for the band. He was accepted as the band's kind of um, front man, if you will. He wasn't a singer by any stretch of the imagination. But he was kind of the face for the band, and he was also the main lyricist for the band. And his big contribution to the Manic Street Preachers was his lyrics, but also, like, the aesthetic of the band. Again, like, he couldn't sing, he couldn't play guitar, even though he was considered one of the guitarists for the band. What they would do, and I thought this was really funny, when they would play gigs, like live performances, they would give Richie a guitar, but they would unplug the guitar or... They would turn the volume down really low so that you couldn't hear what he was playing because he was like miming playing the guitar. He had no musical talent like that at all. His talent really came from lyrics specifically. Like he gave 
so much to the band just based on the lyrical content. So that's where he really shined a lot. But of course, he was also considered like the face of the band, um, like the aesthetic of the band and representing them like that, if that makes sense. It's said that Richie wrote approximately 80% of the lyrics on their third album, The Holy Bible. Despite Richie's lack of musical input, he contributed to their overall musical direction and he played a big part in deciding the band's sound. So, from my understanding of researching Richie and getting to know who he is deeply, and let me say, I really went into a big rabbit hole with this whole entire episode. I went deep with this, and that might not be the best thing um, because his mind was really troubled. I have to say, it was a, it was a troubled mind and understanding who he was and the things that he was drawn to. It was, he's an interesting person. He's a really interesting, very sensitive kind of person. He had a lot of things to say. He felt so much emotions for people, for himself, like, but he also had a deep sense of insecurity. I noticed that about him, that he is deeply insecure about himself in so many ways. And I find that a lot of like tortured artists or musicians are like that too, that despite maybe the rock and roll exterior that they put out there, that they're suffering just beneath the surface, like an iceberg. You only see so much of the iceberg on the surface, but you underneath the water, there's so much of the iceberg that's unseen and it goes for miles. Like his soul was a big cesspool of emotions and depression and wondering about life. So he suffered from severe depression and he was open about it in interviews. He never shied away from talking about his mental illnesses. Um, he was very candid about it. What he was also very open about sharing was the fact that he was self-harming. Some of the common ways that he would self-harm would be to put cigarettes out on his arms and he would cut himself. Um, that's, I think, the most common way of doing it. I think that's what everyone knows about self-harm is through cutting. He would take knives and like scratch on his chest and his arms and things like that. He was totally no stranger to expressing that he did these things and being candid about it. I can't tell you how many photos there are like professionally taken photos where you see like cuts on his arms and chest. It's it's crazy. He was so candid and open about it. And he had this to say about that point of view. He said, when I cut myself, I feel so much better. All the little things that might have been annoying me suddenly seem so trivial because I'm concentrating on the pain. I'm not a person who can scream and shout. So this is my only outlet. It's all done very logically. He actually was so open about his self-harm that there was a very infamous incident that happened on the 15th of May in 1991. After a show at the Norwich Arts Center, there was a journalist at the time. His name was Steve Lamack, and I hope I said that correctly. Um, he worked with NME, and, you know, the Manic Street Preachers were coming up in the music industry. They proclaimed themselves to be kind of punk rockers. And Steve's whole perspective of the band was that they were posers, that of course they were not real punkers, that they were just stupid posers. Um, so Steve goes up to the band after this show and he questioned how serious Richie Edwards was about his art, his lyrical content in the band and things like that. He was like putting into question how serious and how real he was about the stuff that they were singing about. 
like having the balls to just ask him, are you for real right now? So Richie responded to his questions by taking out a razor blade and he sliced into his arm for real. It was crazy. Like, and there's pictures. Obviously, I wouldn't recommend you look at it because that's, I mean, God, it was really bad. Um, He had to get 18 stitches just to fix that whole mess on his arm. And that's how open he was about it. That's the person we're dealing with here. I just want to like lay that out there. That's the kind of person, that's the mindset that he is, that he has. So I'm setting the precedent to his disappearance just just to line things up so that you all understand the mindset that he had. For those that don't know about him and his story like me, learning these kind of things about him really puts it into perspective like, okay, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. While he also suffered from depression, he also suffered from severe insomnia. He couldn't sleep and he used alcohol to keep him asleep. He tried. He tried his best. So he would use alcohol. I didn't really see if drugs was necessarily a big thing that he was abusing, um, but it was primarily alcohol that he would use. So he couldn't sleep. His mind was racing on so many things and he would use alcohol to numb the pain, but also to try and help him sleep at night. Um, Before the release of their third album, The Holy Bible in 94, he checked himself into White Church Hospital and then later the Priory Hospital for his mental state of mind and, you know, he needed to get help. Um, So he checked himself into these hospitals. And because of that, he missed out on some of the promotional work for the album and it forced the band to go on without him to the Reading Festival and Tea in the Park and other shows and stuff. So while they were touring, he was in the hospital. Richie's final live appearance with the band was at the London Astoria on the 21st of December 1994. The concert ended with the band smashing their equipment and damaging the lighting system, which isn't unusual. That's kind of what they were known for as well, like smashing the guitars and all their instruments on stage. Like that's not abnormal, Um, but that's just like what happened. So the final documented ever interview that we have of Richie that he gave was on January the 23rd, 1995. And this interview was for a Japanese music magazine called Music Life. And I read the transcript of the interview, the whole entire thing. And I have to say, it really, really showed his state of mind. And he was not in a good place. It's weird because in parts of the interview, he says that his time at the hospital helped him, which is great, but that he clearly was still not in the right frame of mind at all. So I just took a bit of notes on the interview that I thought were pertinent points to talk about. Again, just to further um, give precedent to his disappearance not long after this interview was given. From this interview to the time he disappeared, it, it was about nine days. Things that I noticed in the interview was Richie commented that he shaved all of his hair off. Um, He said a reason for this was he had trouble sleeping and his destructive thoughts kept him up at night. So he felt the severe need to shave his head. And also not long before the interview, about two weeks before this interview took place, his childhood dog Snoopy passed away. um, And his family buried Snoopy. um, And that was very traumatic for him. 
So that's also why he shaved his head. And that makes sense. That totally, totally, totally makes sense. I mean, that reminds me of when Britney Spears shaved her head because she was going through a really traumatic mental breakdown. And that's kind of one of the signs that someone's going through a really bad, tumultuous time in their own brain, like almost like they're a slave to their own brain is when they do things like that, when they act out and shave their head, for example. And what's interesting about that whole thing, it might not seem important to talk about that he shaved his head, who cares, right? But the important thing there is he cared about his appearance a lot. And he said like he he held on to his hair because it was a part of who he is and it was a part of his persona. And he was deeply insecure about his looks. He really, really was. And it makes me sad to think about. He clearly had body dysmorphia and he disguised you know, shaving his head and all that stuff as a means of, oh, I'm just a vain person. Like he would say that in the interview, oh, I'm a very vain person. But that's only because he's masking that vanity with the pain he's feeling because he's insecure. Like, for example, in the interview, it it was also said that he would drink a lot. Um, and because of his drinking, he wouldn't eat a whole lot either. Like he just wasn't eating a whole lot. I believe he suffered as well from anorexia, if I'm not mistaken as well. Um, so when you're not eating and you're just drinking, you know, you get a beer belly with beer, of course, with alcohol. That's what he was drinking. And he thought to himself, I don't want to get a beer belly. I don't want to look like that. So it was a weird position he was putting himself in where he wanted to hold on to his appearance so badly because... In a way, that's what he's known for. He was known for his attire, his skinniness, his physical appearance, and that in turn made him deeply depressed, I think, as well. He clearly had body dysmorphia, and I don't take that lightly, so that's why I mentioned he shaved his head, because that's a big sign. Shaving his head, massive sign. Cutting all of his hair off, shaving it to the skull, massive. Um, so... That's one of the key factors that I noted in that interview was he shaved his head. He also commented that he threw away a lot of his notebooks that contained lyrics that he didn't like or journaling, like he would journal in those notebooks as well, just thoughts in his mind. Apparently, he would keep a lot of notebooks, like stacks and stacks and stacks of notebooks. He said that he threw them all away over the river because he didn't want them anymore and he didn't like them anymore and he wasn't happy with the lyrics. He would say like he would write for days and days and days and he would not be satisfied with what he was producing, so he just threw them all away. So that's another key factor as well that he was throwing his stuff away. He then talked about his stay at the Priory Hospital where he was apparently living in complete isolation by himself not even having any kind of telephone in his flat where he was living. He he was living alone. So he was isolating himself from the outside world, from his friends, his family. That's a bad sign as well, obviously. He's isolating. He has no phone. Back then, this was the 90s. There was only a house phone, a landline phone. He didn't even have that. Probably no computer and stuff, I could imagine. So there's no way to contact him except for a letter in the post. <laughs> an actual knock on the door. He said he would think about everything, like anything and everything, and he has had a deep need to understand things seriously, to not just accept things as they are on the surface, but he had a deep-seated need to understand life and people 
and things and situations and himself. So just a whole lot of um, sadness there, a whole lot of isolation and sadness. He, he said that he liked living by himself, but he did long for a loving relationship with a woman. But he thought that that wouldn't ever happen for him. He said the expectations upon the two of them would make it difficult. And also he didn't see how someone would ever want to live with him. He also said, the interviewer, um, I have to give the interviewer a little bit of props. He was trying to ask some deep questions to try and gauge Richie's state of mind. And he could pick up on the fact that Richie was not okay. So he was saying to Richie, basically, like, do you know how loved you are? You have so many people that love and care about you. And Richie commented, basically, that means nothing because to someone who hates themselves, when someone tells you that you have so many people that love and care about you, all that they're thinking of is, how could they? How could they love and care about me when I don't even love and care about myself? This is a major red flag. And it's so sad that a sooner opportunity was not taken to help him even more. He needed it, clearly. The last question from the interview was, where do the Manic Street Preachers stand right now? And I just wanted to read his last written response ever in interview form ever. This was the last thing that was written. The band is getting better and better. The lyrics are too. I've found better ways to express myself. Though I don't need to know if my words have become more acceptable than before. I hope they have. Some songs on the Holy Bible are pretty clear. I don't think I've changed what I say, but maybe I'm saying it in a different way. And so that's the setup for his disappearance. I have to say, I tried my best to put a timeline together of accurate things that happened in a sequential order because there's a lot of confusion around his disappearance and I have some questions as well. And I'm sure you'll all have questions and at the end of this, you might think one way or another or you might be confused as well. Join in with me on this massive confusion train because we are starting directly on his disappearance. So like I said, this was approximately a week, a little bit more than a week, about nine days since that last interview until now. So this is February the 1st, 1995. And this is when he disappeared. So Richie and James Dean Bradfield were due to fly to the United States. The whole band was set to tour the U.S., for the Holy Bible. It was said multiple times by a lot of different people that Richie did not want to go to the United States. He did not want to go, um, but that's what they were doing. So this was, from my understanding as well, their big, what would have been their really big tour in the United States. And for a British band to make it big in the United States is massive. So this was a big deal for the band. And this was their first time in the United States. So leading up to February the 1st, in the two weeks prior to that time, he withdrew roughly 200 pounds a day from his bank account. And the sum of this withdrawal of 200 pounds a day equaled about 2,800 pounds by the time that they were scheduled to fly to the United States on February the 1st. So he had only withdrawn 2,800 pounds from his account. He didn't withdraw all of his money, just that odd amount of money. It is not known if he intended to spend the money during the United States tour 
or whether it was part of a desk that he had ordered and he was going to pay for the desk. He ordered this desk from a shop in Cardiff and he needed it for his house. However, there is no record of the desk having ever been paid for. So he had this money, but it's not really known what the money is used for. We can estimate what the money is used for, but I'll get to that in a few moments. So it was only James Dean Bradfield and Richie that were staying at the Embassy Hotel in Bayswater Road in London. And they were only going to stay for a night and then take the plane, obviously, to the United States on the 1st of February. So James and Richie, they checked into the Embassy Hotel on January the 31st, and they booked adjoining rooms. So Richie stayed in hotel room number 561, and James was right next door in the adjoining room. The two of them had actually made plans to initially kind of check the scene around the embassy, see what's going on, check out the cafes, like just to have a good time out before they were to go on their flight to the U.S., um, however, when James knocked on his door that night, Richie changed his mind and he said he wanted a quiet night in instead. That very night, unbeknownst to James the whole entire time, Richie was planning a whole thing here. So Richie removed some books and videos like VHS tapes from his overnight bag. He was a literary fan He loved um, books and movies and TV, but he was mainly obsessed with books. Like he had a really big book collection. He was obsessed with literature. And I'll mention later on here some of his favorite or most poignant novelists that he cited inspiration from that really paint a clear picture for his state of mind. But so anyway. He had some books and some videos in his overnight bag, and he placed these items in a box on the bed in the hotel room, and he had the box accompanied with a note that said simply, I love you. And he wrapped the box like a birthday present, and he decorated the box with photos and literary quotations. This package was addressed to his on-and-off girlfriend, Joe, whom he met some years prior, although they had split a few weeks before January the 31st. So he was planning on giving this to Joe and having this be delivered to her. So this was a plan he had set in motion for some time. So during that night, it has also been known that a visitor came to see him that night in his hotel room. And this is an ex of his named Vivian. There is not a lot known about Vivian. There's a lot of mystery surrounding her. However, it was known somewhat that she did come to visit him that night. And apparently this girl Vivian lived in Israel for some time. And Israel is important to this story. So she came over to see him at the hotel. I assume that he asked her to come see him. And this sighting is confirmed by Richie's sister, Rachel, because Rachel was doing her own investigative thing on his disappearance. And so and this is how she found out that Vivian came to see him that night. So that night, apparently Richie gave her a book called Novel with Cocaine, and he instructed her to read the introduction to the book. And apparently the introduction to this book detailed the author staying in a mental asylum before vanishing. He also handed over his passport to her, saying he didn't need it anymore. 
but she refused his passport. So that was the night of the 31st. Now the next morning on February the 1st, James, unbeknownst to him of what happened that night in Richie's room, he waited in the hotel lobby for Richie so that they could leave the hotel together. However, Richie did not show up. So upon getting really nervous and wondering what was going on, why is he not showing up? James asked one of the hotel employees to use a master key to open his door. Say, hey, can you check this out for me, please? James went with the hotel employee and upon entering Richie's hotel room, they found, strangely, a bathtub filled with water, kind of like he intended to go in a bath, but he never did. Or you could say he went in the bath and he never drained the water, (laughs) either one. Um, And they obviously found the wrapped box on the bed. Upon looking through some of his stuff that he left behind in the hotel room, they found a receipt that showed that the night before, on January the 31st, Richie spent about roughly 10 pounds at a Surrey printer. And it was probably for some of the photographs that were left as decorations on the box. So again, clearly he planned this out pretty well, that this is what he was going to do. What we do know is that... On the morning of the 1st, Richie collected his wallet, his car keys, a couple pills of his Prozac, not all of it, but some of his Prozac, and his passport. It was reported that he checked out of the hotel at 7 a.m. on the 1st. So he left in his Vauxhall car with the items that I described. At the hotel, he left behind his toiletries like toothbrush, toothpaste, whatever. He left his suitcase and he left the rest of his Prozac. So, interesting that he didn't feel the need to take all of his Prozac, just some of his Prozac. So, he drove his car from the hotel into Cardiff, and to get from London into Cardiff, from my recollection, I looked this up on Google Maps, I believed it was roughly a a two to three hour drive from the hotel into Cardiff. You have to drive over a bridge called the Severn Bridge, And the Severn Bridge is a very important place of note in this story because the Severn Bridge was apparently a well-known suicide hotspot. He drove his car into Cardiff and he was going to his flat. And when he made it to his flat, it was here that he left behind his passport, his wallet, and the rest of the Prozac pills that he never took. And he also left a toll booth receipt from the Severn Bridge that showed that he crossed the bridge at 2.55. So upon figuring out that Richie is not there at the hotel, James drives into Cardiff, figuring that perhaps maybe he forgot some stuff at his house, perhaps, and that's where he was. So he drove to Cardiff and he knocked on Richie's door. And obviously, you know, he didn't answer because he was already gone. So this is where now things are starting to get dire because they don't know where he is. And so he notifies the rest of the band and their manager files a missing persons report for Richie. And unfortunately, bad timing with the promotion, James ends up going to the United States to promote the album. And the rest of the band stays behind in London slash Cardiff to kind of help with this investigation. So that's what we know. However, The following two weeks are extremely spotty at best. There was claimed to be a couple of sightings from one to two to three people that claimed 
to have spotted Richie in Newport, and that's in Wales. So that's not far away from Cardiff. If I remember correctly, again, roughly maybe 40 minutes to an hour from his home in Cardiff. So some people thought that they spotted him at a Newport passport office and at the Newport bus station. The bus station one was apparently claimed that a fan spotted him at the bus station. And according to this fan, he went up to Richie and obviously the fan didn't know that Richie was missing. So he went up to talk to Richie. Apparently the two of them discussed a mutual friend and then Richie left. Again, spotty. We don't know if that's a confirmed or unconfirmed. It's just kind of a a marker on the information. So another instance here that could have been him, possibly, or maybe not. Some would say that this was a true incident that did involve Richie. So a week goes by and it's now February the 7th. So a taxi driver from Newport in Wales supposedly said, that he picked up a man who he thought, looking back on it, was in fact Richie Edwards from the King's Hotel in Newport, Wales. And according to this taxi driver, the taxi driver drove him around to various locations. One included his hometown in Blackwood, Wales, and then to a couple of other stations along the way. The driver reported that Richie, who he thought was Richie, I'll just say it was Richie, that Richie had spoken in a Cockney accent that occasionally slipped into a Welsh accent for some reason. I don't know what that was all about, but that's what he noted. He also asked him if he could lie down on the back of the seat. Eventually, the driver took him to Blackwood and they kind of drove around the town because that's where he grew up in. And the driver dropped him off at the Blackwood bus station. But Richie reportedly said this isn't the place. And so the next place that they went to was the Pontypool railway station. And from Blackwood to Pontypool, that's about roughly, again, half an hour, 40 minutes from my recollection. He drove him to Pontypool. Um, However, at Pontypool, it was later found out that there was no telephone at the Pontypool railway station. And that's why they left. I don't know, perhaps, if Richie meant to um, use the telephone to call somebody. And that's why they left Pontypool, because it didn't have a telephone. So after they decided Pontypool was not the place, they finally then went to the Severn station, the service station. And apparently Richie got out there. And he paid the taxi driver the 68 fare in cash. And that was it. So that whole kind of thing, the taxi driver thought it was him looking back on it. That's why I wanted to mention it, that that whole exchange happened. So so now a week later on Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, this is a fact. His Vauxhall Cavalier car received a parking ticket. It was parked at the Severn View service station that day on Valentine's Day. The car was left for a few days. And on the 17th of February, the car was then reported officially as abandoned. And then they found out that that was, in fact, his car. So police, when they found out that this was his car, they searched the car and they discovered that the car's battery was dead and that there was evidence that the car had been lived in, meaning that he was living in his car. 
for two weeks, a week, a couple of days. The timeline isn't really known, but he was living in his car. And sadly, the car was strewn about with photographs of his family that he had taken that Christmas holiday of 94. So very, very sad. He was looking at photos of his family living in his car. Very, very sad story there. So again, like I mentioned, the Severn Bridge, which is where his car was found, it's a known suicide spot. The police kind of put two and two together that, oh, he he killed himself. He jumped off of the bridge. Okay, whatever. Case closed. Makes sense. However, many people who knew him, like his bandmates, his family, they said that he was never the type to contemplate suicide. And Richie was even quoted in a 1994 interview saying this about suicide. In terms of the S word, that does not enter my mind and it never has done in terms of an attempt because I'm stronger than that. I might be a weak person, but I can take pain. And this is what I have to say about that. No one really knows, okay? Even the person. No one truly knows if someone is capable of doing it until they do it. Genuinely. So the fact that his friends and family bandmates said, oh, he could never. Oh, there's no way he could ever do it. That's a classic thing that happens in cases like this. Oh, there's no possible way he could have done it. Oh, he loved life. Oh, he even said himself he would never do it until it actually happens. So not that I'm discrediting them, but I put a question mark on that. Like, okay, you, you really don't know. It's a strong possibility. The timeline is very confusing because we have the span of the, the 1st of Feb until when his car is found on Valentine's Day two weeks later. And in between that time, circumstances of everything else, we don't really know. So it's very confusing. I mean, a lot of people have theories. I think the likely of the scenario is either one, he did kill himself or two, he did voluntarily disappear. Those are the only two that I think are the are the one that make the most sense. So, but that's it. That That's kind of the official information, the facts of what we know. And since then, there's been multiple reportings of uh, spottings of Richie from as far as India to islands like Fuerteventura and Lanzarote and other places in like Europe and things like Germany was another, some other ones in England and Scotland and things like just everywhere. And again, one was in Israel because he was interested in that woman Vivian and she was from Israel. I'll get into that in a moment. None of these sightings obviously have proved to be conclusive and they have not been confirmed by police or investigators. In fact, they never really looked into those because they thought it was a whole lot of nonsense and that it wasn't true. Here's a really big question mark on this whole case. So I mentioned in the story that on February the 1st, he had taken his Vauxhall car from the hotel in London to his flat in Cardiff and he had a toll ticket that said the timestamp was 2.55. Now, I didn't state the time of day, whether that was a.m. or p.m., because investigators assumed that 2.55 must have meant p.m. However, this is so frustrating, it only was found out in 2018 when they were looking at the evidence again that actually the clock on the bridge was actually a 24-hour clock, meaning 2.55 p.m. was actually 2.55 a.m. This is a big question for me because I'm very confused about that. 
if he had supposedly checked out of his hotel at 7 a.m. on the 1st, how could he have checked over the bridge at 2.55 a.m.? One of those things has to be off or, or something has to be off there. And I unfortunately could not find enough information to know what really was going on there. I, I just unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of investigating generally in this case. Could he have gotten help? Could he have an accomplice that could have helped him check out of the hotel later that day to give him more time to escape? Who knows? However, that's a big overlooked piece of evidence from this whole case. That one little thing puts into question like so many things. And unfortunately, it took them 23 years to figure that out. So whatever. I mean, the whole investigation itself received so much criticism. People really thought that the police were not taking his mental state into account when they were prioritizing Uh, looking into his disappearance at all. They were not putting his mental state into consideration at all. And, And so many people were not satisfied at all with this investigation. So unfortunate this happens so often with with true crime cases. Just the police drop the ball on so many levels. It's just so unfortunate. His family had the option of declaring him legally dead from 2002 onwards. However, they chose not to for many years obviously in the hopes that he would come back to them. Um, However, that day never came, and so they officially presumed him dead on the 23rd of November 2008. So he's declared legally dead, whether he is or he's living his best life somewhere in the world. Only you can really ascertain that for yourself. Only you can really have the facts presented to you and make up your own decision on that. Um, So... But I haven't given you every bit of information yet. I've only given you kind of the facts about the timeline in the case. I haven't given you a lot about stuff that could could back up a possible theory that he staged his disappearance instead of killing himself. So we'll get into that in just a moment. One thing that I thought was really, really um, sad, but also sweet, like a bittersweet thing that happened. The Manic Street Preachers would continue making music and playing shows without him. However, they... Always, when they would play on stage, they set up an extra microphone for him in his honor, hoping one day he would show up and play with them again. That day never came. And also, also in hopes that he would show up one day, the band went as far as depositing 25% of the band's royalties directly into his bank account. Isn't that so sad? I think that's really sad. So that's basically the information right? That's basically his disappearance. However, I want to get into the theory that was put out there by his own sister, Rachel, okay? His sister did her own investigation, and she firmly believes that he staged his own disappearance, that he did not kill himself, and he staged the whole entire thing because apparently disappearances and staging disappearances and vanishing into thin air is a topic, a subject that he was always fascinated about. His sister Rachel was working alongside authors and investigators to put together a book, and this book is called Withdrawn Traces, Searching for the Truth About Richie Manic. And this came out in 2019, so only a few short years ago. And in this, she details all these things that I'm going to mention right here to kind of give credence into this stage disappearance theory. Rachel and the authors and these investigators looked directly into Richard's childhood, 
his artwork, his own journals, etc., to find clues to see if he could have staged his own death. So a couple bullet points to, I guess, maybe prove or to give credence to the theory that he staged his disappearance. Richie actually has ancestors, family members, who had similarly disappeared and isolated themselves from the family. So he has two relatives. He has a great aunt, Bessie, and he has an uncle, Shane. His great aunt, Bessie, shunned herself away from the rest of her family by living isolated alone in her childhood house for 80 years. She became a hermit. She never left the house. She stayed in the house for 80 years. So that's one. The second, his uncle Shane. His uncle Shane moved to the United States in the 60s to pursue an education at the University of Texas. And apparently his family hadn't heard from him for five years. He seemingly vanished off the face of the earth for five years. He never called, sent messages, uh, letters, nothing. So they didn't know what was going on with him for five years. So seemingly enough, there seems to be a link in the ancestry there of disappearance and or mental illness, seemingly. Another bullet point is that Richie had a fascination with disappearance as seen in some of his schoolwork. So two instances to back this up is that Richie wrote two stories at school. He wrote one in 1980, where he wrote a story about wanting to escape over the Severn Bridge. And he wrote another one in 81 that details him wanting to live his life abroad. Another bullet point that I mentioned before is Richard had an extensive library of books. He loved books. He loved literature. He was so fascinated with books and getting stuck into poetry, to um, uh, nonfiction, to fiction, uh, history, everything and, and anything he possibly could he got stuck into. And his sister, Rachel, found a lot of books where Richard highlighted certain passages or he bookmarked certain pages in a book that talked about disappearances and or a life in exile. Some examples of this. One book that he had in his arsenal was a poetry book by Arthur Hart Crane. And apparently he highlighted a poem in this book where the poem described a life of exile. The poem itself was called Exile, okay? So he highlighted a whole story about living in exile. Another book that he loved a lot was Albert Camus' book called A Happy Death. And he apparently bought a lot of copies of this book and passed them out to his friends before his death. He also had a fascination with Sylvia Plath. And I'm familiar with Sylvia Plath's work. She is a New England poet. She was born here in Massachusetts, where I'm located. I've known about Sylvia Plath, and she had mental illness as well. She um, sadly killed herself as well. So she dealt with a lot of severe depression and mental illness. Richie really um, loved her work. There was one poem of hers in particular called Tulips that Richie actually gave out to Rachel. He actually gave her a copy of this poem, and according to her, he asked that this poem was to be read at his funeral. Strange. Rachel, upon reflecting on that, said, his thoughts must have been dominated by this poem, The Themes and Messages. And I read the poem. You know, basically the poem is generally considered to depict the tension between Sylvia Plath's desire for a simple life. You know, the, the tension and, and the conflict between her need for simplicity and the simplicity of just dying. She also attempted to kill herself many times. So 
She had the contrast between the need to die and the bright red tulips that to her gave her encouragement towards living. She actually wrote this poem when she was in hospital for an appendectomy and people were giving her flowers. It all weirdly kind of comes together. It's just so strange. You know, Richie clearly, I think, drew upon that. And all of these other authors that talked about the death and uh, depression and disappearances and living in exile and things like that. This is another really weird coincidence. I suppose it's a coincidence, but he also had a fascination specifically with writers Arthur Rimbaud and J.D. Salinger, and one of his favorite movies talked about disappearances. So listen to this. Arthur Rimbaud, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, Rimbaud, wrote a book called A Season in Hell, and then subsequently after he wrote that book, he, he himself disappeared. He himself chose to live a life out in the wilderness, okay? This author. Weird. Strange. J.D. Salinger, he's the one that wrote Catcher in the Rye, and he also himself lived a life of isolation and chose an exile. This is strange. This is weird. Apparently, Richie's favorite movie was the film Eddie and the Cruisers from 1983. It's about this guy named Eddie, who's a lyrical genius of this band, and he disappears after a fight with the record label. And Richie also apparently liked this show called The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which apparently is a black comedy about the main character faking his own death. I mean, what? <laughs> There's too many here to really be coincidence. Clearly, he had a fascination with staging disappearances or disappearing in general, and he clearly had a liking to authors that were troubled like he was. Clearly. So another big theory of him staging his disappearance was with this woman, Vivian, okay, and his fascination with Israel. So how the story goes was pretty much during his stay in hospital in 1994 at the Priory Hospital, he met this woman in the same ward that he was staying in, and she was apparently in her early 20s, and she was an artist and an academic. She, at some point after their stay in the hospital, she ended up moving to Israel. And weirdly, Richie gets a tattoo in late 94 that depicts on his arm, he, it depicts the entry to hell, kind of like Dante's Inferno, and it had Jerusalem in the tattoo, okay? He put that in there himself. That is really and honestly bizarre. Also, Rachel has said that before his disappearance, he called her on the phone one day talking about the planned trip to the United States he didn't want to take. He said himself he would rather visit Israel. So the whole thing is people think he staged his disappearance so he could move with this girl Vivian and start a life in Israel. Could that be a possibility? Sure. But basically, in a nutshell, that is the entire disappearance of Richie Edwards. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I know that it was a really different one, but I quite enjoyed getting stuck into this story and really figuring out for myself what the whole situation was. I still really don't know if he did kill himself or if he did stage his own disappearance. Either way, I think we should honor his life because he was a very troubled person. He clearly thought deeply about life and people and himself and trying to understand the world around him. He just tried to live his life. And it's just, it's a very sad story. Um, so... Listen to some Manic Street Preachers today if you want to. Listen to some of their songs or get to know Richie a bit more. 
look up some more information on him or try to maybe figure this disappearance out yourself. It's a one to get stuck into, I must say. But that's where I'm going to leave it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed and you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.